Let's turn in the word of God to Ezekiel chapter 33. Ezekiel chapter 33. Let's read that chapter in its entirety. This is the word of the Lord. Again, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of thy people, and say unto them, When I bring the sword upon a land, if the people of the land take a man of their coasts and set him for their watchmen, if when he seeth the sword come upon the land, he blow the trumpet and warn the people, then whosoever heareth the sound of the trumpet and taketh not warning, if the sword come and take him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and took not warning, his blood shall be upon him. But he that taketh warning shall deliver his soul. But if the watchmen see the sword come and blow not the trumpet, and the people be not warned, if the sword come and take any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at the watchman's hand. So thou, O son of man, I have set thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore thou shalt hear the word at my mouth and warn them from me. When I say unto the wicked, O wicked man, thou shalt surely die, if thou dost not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Nevertheless, if thou warn the wicked of his way to turn from it, if he do not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. Therefore, O thou son of man, speak unto the house of Israel. Thus he speaks, saying, if our transgressions and our sins be upon us, and we pine away in them, how should we then live? Say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? Therefore, thou son of man, say unto the children of thy people, the righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him in the day of his transgression. As for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall thereby in the day that he turneth from his wickedness. Neither shall the righteous be able to live for his righteousness in the day that he sinneth. When I shall say to the righteous that he shall surely live, if he trust to his own righteousness and commit iniquity. All his righteousnesses shall not be remembered, but for his iniquity that he hath committed, he shall die for it. Again, when I say unto the wicked, thou shalt surely die, if he turn from his sin and do that which is lawful and right, if the wicked restore the pledge, give again that he had robbed, walk in the statutes of life without committing iniquity, he shall surely live he shall not die. 
None of his sins that he hath committed shall be mentioned unto him. He hath done that which is lawful and right. He shall surely live. Yet the children of thy people say, The way of the Lord is not equal. But as for them, their way is not equal. When the righteous turneth from his righteousness and committeth iniquity, he shall even die thereby. But if the wicked turn from his wickedness and do that which is lawful and right, he shall live thereby. Yet ye say, the way of the Lord is not equal. O ye house of Israel, I will judge you, every one after his ways. And it came to pass in the twelfth year of our captivity, in the tenth month, in the fifth day of the month, that one that had escaped out of Jerusalem came unto me, saying, The city is smitten. Now the hand of the Lord was upon me in the evening, afore he that was escaped came, and had opened my mouth until he came to me in the morning, and my mouth was opened, and I was no more dumb. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, they that inhabit those wastes of the land of Israel speak, saying, Abraham was one, and he inherited the land, but we are many. The land is given us for inheritance. Wherefore say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Ye eat with the blood, and lift up your eyes toward your idols, and shed blood, and shall ye possess the land? Ye stand upon your sword, ye work abomination, and ye defile everyone his neighbor's wife, and shall ye possess the land? Say thou thus unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, As I live, surely they that are in the wastes shall fall by the sword, and him that is in the open field will I give to the beasts to be devoured, and they that be in the forts and in the caves shall die of the pestilence. For I will lay the land most desolate, and the pomp of her strength shall cease, and the mountains of Israel shall be desolate, that none shall pass through, then shall they know that I am the Lord when I have laid the land most desolate because of all their abominations which they have committed. Also, thou son of man, the children of thy people still are talking against thee by the walls and in the doors of the houses and speak one to another, every one to his brother, saying, Come, I pray you, and hear what is the word that cometh forth from the Lord. They come unto thee as the people cometh, and they sit before thee as my people, and they hear my, thy words, but they will not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their heart goeth after their covetousness. And lo, thou art unto them as a very lovely song of one that hath a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument, for they hear thy words, but they do them not. And when this cometh to pass, lo, it will come, then shall they know that a prophet hath been among them. As far we read God's word, and now it's on the basis of that and other passages that give the teaching of Lord's Day 33. Lord's Day 33. 
Of how many parts doth the true conversion of man consist? Of two parts, of the mortification of the old and the quickening of the new man. What is the mortification of the old man? It is a sincere sorrow of heart that we have provoked God by our sins and more and more to hate and flee from them. What is the quickening of the new man? It is a sincere joy of heart in God through Christ and with love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. But what are good works? Only those which proceed from a true faith are performed according to the law of God and to his glory, and not such as are founded on our imaginations or the institutions of men. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, as you probably know well by now, we are in the third part of the Heidelberg Catechism. And this third part of the Catechism is concerns our thankfulness for our salvation. First part, how great our sins and miseries are. Second part, how we're delivered from our sins and miseries in Jesus Christ. And now this Third part, how we express our gratitude for what Christ has done, delivering us from our sins and our miseries. And you would expect this Lord's Day, 33rd, on true conversion to be in this section of the Heidelberg Catechism. In fact, you would expect it to be toward the front or the beginning of this third part of the Catechism. And both of those things, of course, are true. Daily conversion, turning from sin, turning to God, what could be more practical than that? What we're going to hear this morning, beloved, has to do with what you might just say is the normal Christian life. The things that we're going to hear about have to do with what goes on every single day. What is the portrait of the Christian life? What does it look like? If you were to ever ask that question, this, what we read here in Lord's Day 33. So let's hear about it under the theme, true conversion. Let's hear, first of all, the meaning of that. Second, the aspects of it, and then we're zeroing in on the doctrine, and then third, the fruit. True conversion, the meaning, the aspects, the fruit. Before we come to that doctrine of conversion and what its meaning is, let's back out a moment and let's get some background information, and this background information will then help us understand what conversion is better. 
And that background information is this. This whole matter of the old man and the new man. You read of that in question and answer 88. Of how many parts doth the true conversion of man consist? Of two parts, the mortification of the old and the quickening of the new man. If we're going to know what conversion is, we had better know, first of all, what the old man and the new man is. Let's go back 6,000 years in history to the Garden of Eden. There are our first parents, Adam and Eve. God made them perfect. No sin. In fact, not only did God make a very good creation when he made Adam and Eve, but he created them after his own image in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Something that we can hardly imagine, they did not sin toward God, and they did not sin toward each other. No sin in relationships. It was a wonderful life although probably very brief, there in the garden. And then something of catastrophic proportions happened. Adam and Eve did exactly what God told Adam he might not do, that is, eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So Eve took of that fruit that God had forbidden, gave also to her husband, they both ate, they both fell into sin. That was a drastic, a tremendous change for our first parents. Our canons describe it very well. Heads 3 and 4, Article 1. Man was originally formed after the image of God. His understanding was adorned with a true and saving knowledge of his creator and of spiritual things. His heart and will were upright, all his affections pure, and the whole man was holy, but revolting from God by the instigation of the devil and abusing the freedom of his own will, he forfeited these excellent gifts and on the contrary entailed on himself blindness of mind, horrible darkness, vanity, and perverseness of judgment became wicked, rebellious, and obdurate in heart and will and impure, in his affections. That is quite something that happened 6,000 years ago. There are some things that happen in history that don't have a whole lot of connection to us. So we can look at those events and say, well, that happened, and that was a part of God's plan, but that really doesn't have an effect or have anything to do with me. This event, though, is not one of those. This has everything to do with you and me and definitely has an effect. You see, when Adam stood there in the Garden of Eden, he was our representative. He was our legal representative. So when he fell into sin, he became guilty himself and that guilt of our legal representative, Adam, is imputed or it is reckoned to the whole rest of the human race, except, of course, for Christ. 
And because you and because I, because we're guilty, we're also conceived and born in sin, which is just to say we're conceived and born with a sinful nature. And that sinful nature is what we call the old man. Canons speak to this as well. Heads 3 and 4, Article 2. Man, after the fall, begat children in his own likeness. A corrupt stock produced a corrupt offspring. Hence, all the posterity of Adam, Christ only accepted, have derived corruption from their original parent, not by imitation, as the Pelagians of old asserted, but by the propagation of a vicious nature. That's what we're talking about here, this vicious nature. Sometimes we call it sinful flesh. Other times we call it the old man. Sometimes the old Adam nature. Those are all the same thing, all different terms for what we call old man. Someone who is not regenerated that is someone who has not been born again is only old man that's all that's true about him he's only sinful flesh so he walks indeed he runs in the way of sin he delights in the things of sin that's all that's true of him he's only old man there's a wonderful thing that God has done for us as people. He's regenerated us. He's caused that we would be born again. Those whom in eternity he has chosen in Jesus Christ, that's election, and those for whom he sent Jesus to shed his blood and redeem those are the exact pe same people, those whom he's chosen, those for whom, whom he has sent Christ. Those are the ones that he also regenerates. Bible talks in beautiful ways about regeneration. Ezekiel 36, verse 26. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart flesh. Or maybe a better known passage to us is remember when Nicodemus came to our Savior? And remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Regeneration to be born again. Regeneration, to be given a new heart. It's to be raised up from spiritual death. Sometimes we describe regeneration as the planting of a seed in one's heart. The seed of Christ's life is planted in your heart. And that moment that that seed of Christ's life is planted in your heart is when you're made alive, you're regenerated. There's something miraculous, 
powerful, gracious, mysterious, invisible, and radical about that transformation. Seed of Christ's life planted in your hearts. Regeneration. Now, that seed of Christ's life, which is planted in you, that seed is the new man. That's the new man. And just like you take an acorn and it has in it the recipe for everything that the tree will ever be, so this seed of Christ's life has within it, you might say, <clears throat> the recipe for everything that you will be spiritually. So that seed itself is the new man. But just like a seed of a tree begins to sprout and its life is manifested like that, so also this seed of Christ's life which is planted in your heart begins to sprout. That's the life of Jesus Christ that you are aware of, that you become conscious of. Whether you're talking about the seed itself that's planted in your heart or the seed as it begins to sprout, both of those we call the new man. It's that seed as it begins to sprout that Ephesians 4 verse 24 is talking about when it says, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So there you have some background, some information. Old man, I'm conceived and born in sin, my flesh or my sinful nature. But God's people are regenerated. That seed of Christ's life is planted in them and begins to sprout. That is the new man. The result is that for us who are born again, we have both the old, and the new man within us. There's been some debate over the last couple of years about exactly how to understand this. So we have to be very clear, of course, here. That old man in you does not rule any longer. He does not reign that old man or that sinful flesh does not have dominion over you. That's a part of the good news, isn't it? That's wonderful. You've been regenerated. That seed of Christ's life has been planted in your heart. You've been born again. And at that moment of that implanting, the, the dominion or the reign of that old man was broken. He doesn't rule anymore. But he's still there. That old man is present with you until the day that you die. And although he doesn't reign anymore, you've been regenerated, he is still present, and the old man itself has not been changed. He hasn't been improved, he hasn't been transformed. He hasn't been made less depraved. That old man itself is just as totally depraved as it ever was. And that's still with us all of our days. 
we have old man and new man. That's not just a doctrinal point to be made, although we ought to understand it. That is exceedingly practical. That makes you, doesn't it, congregation, very sober. And it gives us a wariness that we ought to have every single day. I have in me that old Adam nature. And that old Adam nature has its works. Go home and read Galatians 5. It gives a whole catalog of the works of the flesh. Things like fornication and idolatry and anger and drunkenness and so many more things. I can watch the news and shake my head in disgust at all the rape and the murder and the corruption and dishonesty that's out there in the world. But do I shake my head with the same level of disgust at the sinful nature that I know is in me capable of anything? That ought to make us very, very sober. And the fact that we have an old man and a new man doesn't that give us a level-headed outlook on the Christian life too? This is never going to be perfection on this side of Jordan. I'm never even going to get anywhere close to perfection as I live here on this earth. All my life long and every single day that I live, there's going to be sin. And even my good works that I do by the grace of God, come to that later, even my good works are tainted with sin. That's why we're so thankful for a Savior who bled and died for our sins and also for those sins which cleave to our good works. But I'm never going to be perfect on this side of Jordan. And that we have an old man and a new man also reminds us that we're in war. Your life is not one of playing in a park. It's not one in which we walk along a river lazily under a warm sun. That's not the Christian life. I've been born again of an old man and a new man. And every single day when I get up from my bed in the morning, there's warfare. And even though I don't have arrows flying above me, there very really are. Because Satan's sending all of those temptations throughout the day. And the world comes with all of its attacks. And especially I have that enemy within the gates. Fight warfare. That's the Christian life. What we've just described is the normal Christian life then. You continue to sin daily, but you fight against it by God's grace. So that gives us some background information. You can't understand conversion without knowing what the old man and the new man are and where they come from. But now we come to 
conversion. What is that? The meaning of that. That's what Lord's Day 33 is all about. We already brought up that whole matter of regeneration. You've been born again. You've been given spiritual life, the life of Christ as a seed is planted in your heart. But now conversion is different from that. Regeneration is first. It comes first logically. It happens in a moment. You're raised up. Following that and different from it, although tightly related, is conversion. Children, you can understand conversion with one word. When you're in the vehicle on the way home or over lunch and dad and mom say, children, what is conversion? This one word. Turn. Or turning. That's conversion. Sharp, radical, 180 degree turn. So you get in your car on a Saturday afternoon and you're going down a street and there you see a big sign on the side of the street that says dead end or no outlet. And you go down that street this way, but then you can't go any farther. It's a dead end. So you turn 180 degrees completely around and you go this way. That's conversion now spiritually. We're going this way toward sin and serving sin. And conversion is a turning completely and radically around toward God and toward righteousness. Conversion, turning. And that's lifelong and that's every day. Have you ever had someone come up to you and ask you the question, when were you converted? That's a pretty common question in the church world to ask. But it sounds in that question as if they think conversion is just a one-time thing. But that's wrong. Conversion is not simply one time. It's through one's life, lifelong turning, daily turning. And so we come to that passage of Scripture that we read this morning together. Ezekiel 33 and verse 11 I'm going to read a few passages to you. Listen for the word turn. Say unto them, as I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways. For why will ye die, O house of Israel? And then Isaiah 31, verse 6. Turn ye unto him, from whom the children of Israel have deeply revolted. By the way, that ought to be a part of the preaching too. Even in an established congregation, a congregation that's been established even for many years, from week to week, in some form or another, the minister issues that command, the command of God's word, turn ye, turn ye. As we 
issue that this morning. And God works by his word and spirit. With this whole matter of conversion, a turning, we have to understand very plainly, this is God's work. He's sovereign, 100% sovereign in this. A wrong argument goes like this. God's regenerated, and that's all his work. But then conversion, which follows that, that's up to us, and that's our work. I say again, that would be a wrong argument. A correct way to say it, and to say it in truth, would be this. Regeneration is first, implanting of the life of Christ, and that's all of God. And then the conversion, this whole idea of turning, which follows that, that too is all of God, and he's completely sovereign in that. The Bible brings that out too. This is the Lord's work. Listen to Jeremiah 31, verse 18. Turn thou me, and I shall be turned, for thou art the Lord my God. Very clear there. Another passage, verse 19 of that chapter. Surely after that I was turned, I repented. And after that I was instructed, I smote upon my thigh. I was ashamed, yea, even confounded, because I did bear the reproach of my youth. That's the Old Testament. Let's go to the New Testament, one passage. Conversion is God's work. Acts 11, verse 18. When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then God hath granted also to the Gentiles repentance unto life. God granted that repentance. But now a question arises. Are we not active? Is it not true that we mortify the old man and we quicken the new man? We're going to get to those ideas in the second point momentarily. And the answer to that is yes, of course, we are active. It is true that you and I mortify the old man and you and I quicken the new man. We're not stocks and blocks. But here's how to understand it. Our real conscious activity of mortifying the old man is the fruit of God's grace working in us. And our real conscious activity of quickening the new man is the fruit of God's grace powerfully working in us. That's how we can understand that. Conversion, turning. And now let's come lower down to the doctrine and see its details. What I want to point out to you is two main aspects, then, of conversion. Hubbard Catechism gives those two, question and answer 88. Of how many parts doth the true conversion of man consist? Of two parts, the mortification of the old and the quickening of the new man. So we begin with that mortification of the old man. 
Bible even uses that word, mortify. Colossians 3, verse 5. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Mortify means put to death. Kill. Kill that old man. Put to death that old Adam nature, that flesh that we heard about a few minutes ago. Now that raises an eyebrow because that's pretty radical language. That's very strong. And every Sunday morning we hear, thou shalt not kill. But that has to do with our neighbor. We had better never do that and run from that. But here, killing, putting to death, is perfectly legitimate, even commanded of us. There's a radical dealing with the old man and his lusts. Are you strangling him today? Catechism unfolds for us what this mortification of the old man is. It is a sincere sorrow of heart that we have provoked God by our sins and more and more to hate and flee from them. That's what mortification is. It's a sincere sorrow of heart. There is such a thing as insincerity, fake counterfeit sorrow. I think one of the main ways that this is shown is when someone has a so-called sorrow, but it's only over the consequences of their sin. And so I've done something, I've said something, and made a mess of my life now. And there are all sorts of consequences for my sin, which are very painful for me, and I'm only thinking about myself. I'm only thinking about how I've messed up my life in this or that respect. And that's what makes me sorrowful. But that sort of so-called sorrow is no sorrow at all. Not the kind spoken of here. You realize, don't you, that someone with this sort of counterfeit, counterfeit sorrow can make a lot of nice, pious speeches about his sin. He can cry even a lot of tears, but that doesn't mean necessarily that there's a true sorrow there. Catechism speaks of sincere. When I sin, I've provoked God by my sin. And that's the thing, beloved, that's going to crumble me to pieces and break me down in a true sorrow when I realize I've provoked him. And it's my father who is so merciful to me, who sent his only begotten son for me to shed his blood, a greater gift he could not possibly give. And I've sinned against grace and love. That's what's going to reduce me to pieces. Understanding, too, that sin is sin. 
transgression of the law of God, God laid out his line and I deliberately stepped over that line. And when I understand what sin really is and the gravity of it and the one against whom I have sinned, that's pain, that's sorrow of heart. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, for godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. What does the normal Christian life look like day by day? That sorrow or repentance. Mortification of the old man is also to hate our sins more and more. Proverbs chapter 6 puts it pretty strongly. It says there are sins that the Lord hates. He really hates all of them, doesn't he? But that's the kind of attitude that we also ought to have toward our transgressions, that we hate them. Things like pride and lying and hands that shed innocent blood and on and on must not have a neutral view towards sin and certainly not an attitude of coddling sin as if it's something to play with or something to be comfortable with. And I could coexist with my sin. No, no. Hating it. That's a question that I need to face and you do too this morning. Is there a sin in your life and in mine that we're trying to justify that we're even nourishing a little bit. We need to hate it by God's grace. And mortifying means fleeing from our sins, fleeing from them. Whenever there's sin, there's always a direction that we're going, isn't there? There's always a direction. We're either going this way toward our sin in love for it and playing with it, or there's the direction that we're running as far as we can from it, fleeing from it. And sometimes that even takes place physically with our very legs. But if not that, in our minds. Are we fleeing every single day from our sins? You want to know what the Christian life looks like? Repentance, hatred, fleeing. But there's also the quickening of the new man. That is that second aspect of conversion. Romans 6 verse 4 speaks of this. Therefore we are buried with him, that is Christ, by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. Quicken is just the opposite of mortify. Mortify, put to death, kill. Quicken now is to make alive the new man in the sense of living out of the life of Christ in us. Living out of that life. The catechism Describes that too. What is the quickening of the new man? Unpacks this for us now. It is a sincere joy of heart in God through Christ and with love and delight to live according to the will of God 
in all good works. Sincere joy of heart in God through Christ. What's your joy? Young people, you're never going to find joy in the things of this earth. You're not going to find it in academic attainments. You're not going to find it in a phone in your pocket or with how well a sports team is doing or how many things you collect in your life. The things of this life do not give us that true joy and that satisfaction. That's found only in God. He's the only one that can give us that sort of fulfillment, that joy, and that true happiness. Everything else is bankrupt. And that happiness is found in Christ, for whose sake we are regenerated, and for whose sake we are converted even day by day. He's everything to us. Gave himself for us, full of the blessings of salvation that we need. He who lives in us and is our very life, He's everything. Our joy is in the Savior. Quickening the new man. Sincere joy of heart in God through Christ. And also this. And with love and delight to live according to the law of God in all good works. Out of now a heart that's been graciously operated in and upon by God. There is a genuine delight to live a life of good works. It's not drudgery. It's not misery. There's delight. And you can say with the psalmist, and you will say, Lord willing, throughout the coming weeks as you go through the Ten Commandments, oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. And there is a, a running with feet quickened by the grace of God, there's a running after his good commandments. There's a zeal produced by the Holy Spirit to live that life of good works. As that brings us to this, the fruit of God's work of conversion is those good works. Catechism says about them, but what are good works? Only those which proceed from a true faith are performed according to the law of God and to his glory and not such as are founded on our imaginations or the institutions of men. Good works are, we're reminded, back in Lord's Day 32, which you had last time, that Christ has redeemed us he also renews us by his spirit and our good works are the fruit of that renewing work of the Holy Spirit. So this is no, no new subject. We've already touched upon this. And it ought to be emphasized, third section of the catechism, that these good works that we perform by the grace of God, we do so in thankfulness. Christ has done so much for us, shed his very blood for us. Now in thanks, not to earn, but in thanks. 
They live in these good works. We're not going to get into them and explain them at length, but only define them. A good work is one which proceeds from faith. Faith is the source of our good works. You've been united to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the bond of faith. You've been made one plant with him, and his life now courses through your spiritual veins. Faith is the source of good works. Romans 14, verse 23, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And then the Ten Commandments, the law of God, that's the standard for the good works that, they, that we do. We're going to be coming to those Ten Commandments in the next few weeks as we go through these Lord's Days. That law is the standard, or you might say the measuring stick of all our good works. They have a source, faith, a standard, the law, and our good works have a goal. They always aim at something, and that's the glory of God. God's glory is the, the radiating of all of his perfections or his attributes, like his holiness. And our good works aim at magnifying, at extolling the greatness of God and the holiness of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. May God show us plainly as we go through his law in the coming weeks the way that we are to walk before him by his grace in thankfulness for salvation in Christ. Amen. Our Father in heaven, thou art a God who turns us. We thank thee for that grand work by thy spirit of conversion. We praise thee, O Lord, for all the blessings of salvation richly bestowed upon us in Jesus Christ, by his mighty spirit. May we then, Father, be those who are very, very thankful and very, very glad for thy salvation too. Forgive us of our sins and hear us. Bless this word unto our hearts and unto our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.